Hello everyone and welcome to the Unanswered Questions True Crime Podcast. I have spent hours and hours investigating this. He basically told her that people have been killed. Journalists, independent investigators, people like that disappeared. It frightened her to the bone. There's more to the story than meets the eye. There were rumors of torture and homicide and sexual abuse, all sorts of egregious, horrendous crimes. He was polygraphed three times. Each of those three showed evasions. His resumes were a skeleton of truth. He was mad at the world, and particularly mad at the government. The study that he commissioned that described a fictional terrorist attack. If people have died over this, it means you're getting close to the truth. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to say, what the fuck? Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy and as always leave me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the suspicious death of Yuva Bichelle. Yuva Bichelle, born the 13th of May 1944 and died on the 11th of October 1987, was a German politician of the Christian Democratic Union, CDU, who served as Minister President of, and I'm going to butcher this name, Schleswig-Holstein from 1982 to 1987. Bichelle resigned as Minister President shortly after he became embroiled in a scandal known as Water Cunt gate for alleged spying on his social democrat rival during the 1987 state election. On the 11th of October 1987, nine days after his resignation, Bashar was found dead under mysterious circumstances at the, and I'm going to butcher this name, Hotel Biu Rivage in Geneva, Switzerland. While a police investigation concluded that Bashar had committed suicide, which I don't believe, the circumstances of his death are still not entirely clear and inquiries have not been able to prove or disprove theories of suicide or murder. Although Bichelle's death by drug overdose was ruled a suicide, the unanswered questions surrounding the case have long provided grist for the conspiracy theorists and amateur gumshoes, eager to prove that the 43-year-old conservative politician was assassinated. Bichelle, having assumed office of minister-president at the age of 38 and died at 43, is to date the youngest head of government of a federal state in Germany and the youngest former minister-president to die. Now we get into his early life. Bichelle grew up in Bornsen near Hamburg and was raised by his grandparents. In 1963, Bichelle was among a group of, and I'm going to butcher this name, Gestadt students who attended a school assembly which featured former admiral and convicted war criminal Karl Donitz, speaking at the invitation of a pro-Nazi history teacher. The event, during which Donitz gave an apologia for Nazi ideology with no rebuttal from students and staff, caused a furrow when it was reported by the West German and international press. Bichelle joined the Jung Union in 1960. Two years later, he became a member of the Christian Democratic Union in Germany, CDU. In Schleswig-Holstein, Bichelle was a chairman of the Jung Union from 1967 to 1971 and deputy chairman of the CDU in 1969. Bichel studied public law, economics, political science, and education at the University of Kiel. Upon graduating in 1971, he was admitted to the bar and began working as a lawyer and notary. In addition to his legal and political activities, Bichel also developed an interest in science. He was reportedly preparing to withdraw from politics in the middle of the 1987 legislative session and had almost completed his habilitation thesis at the time of his death. 
Now we get into his political career. Bichel was a member of the Landtag in Schleswig-Holstein from 1971 until his death. In 1979, he was appointed Minister of Finance by then Minister President, and I'm going to butcher this name, Gerhard Stoltenberg. In the same year, he took over the Ministry of the Interior and he became one of the delegates from Schleswig-Holstein in the Bundesrat. I'm sorry if I get any of those names wrong. After Stoltenberg had been appointed Federal Finance Minister by new Chancellor Helmut Kohl, Sorry if I get that name wrong. Bichelle was elected the new minister-president in October of 1982. Aged only 38, he was the youngest minister-president in history of the Federal Republic of Germany, FRG. Under his leadership, the CDU defeated their absolute majority at the state elections in 1983. In 1985, Bichelle was one of the founding members of the, and I'm going to butcher this name, Schleswig-Holstein Music Festival. In May of 1987, shortly before the beginning of the election campaign, he narrowly survived a plane crash at Lubbock Airport. Now we get into that mysterious plane crash. On the 31st of May 1987, shortly before the start of the 1987 state election campaign, a plane carrying Bashel and his bodyguard crashed on approach at Lubbock Airport. Both of the pilots were killed in the crash and Bashel's bodyguard succumbed to his injuries in hospital and died a few days later. Bashel survived the crash and no cause for it was ever given and to this day it remains a mystery as to how and why the crash occurred. Several theories point to it being an assassination attempt, but that was never proven. Proven. Now we get into the controversy that led to his resignation. On the 13th of September 1987, the day before the election, the magazine Der Spiegel reported an account by Rainer Pfeiffer, Barschel's media advisor, that Barschel had ordered him to spy on the SDP's top candidate, Bjorn Elkholm, with the aim of embarking on a smear campaign implicating Inkholm in tax evasion. Pfeiffer further claimed to have been ordered to install a bugging device in Barschel's phone and accused the SPD of being the perpetrators. Rainer Pfeiffer also also publicly accused him of hiring a private detective to gather damaging information about a political opponent's sex life. Bichelle allegedly authorized other dirty tricks, including the writing of an anonymous letter accusing the opponent of tax fraud. The subsequent scandal became known as the Bichelle Affair, or Watercunt Gate, an allusion to the Watergate scandal with Watercunt from Low German Waterside. Bichelle vehemently denied involvement in the scandal, but corroborating evidence suggested his complicity and his political allies deserted him. Following these events, the CDU lost votes at the election and the SPD became the strongest party in Schleswig-Holstein. However, the CDU managed to start negotiations for a coalition with the Free Democratic Party, FDP. On the 18th of September, five days after the elections, Bichelle denied all accusations and made the following statement to the press, quote, I give you my word of honour. I repeat my word of honour that the charges brought against me are unfounded, end quote. Bachel resigned as Minister-President on the 2nd of October. In 1987, the first investigation committee yielded no significant results. The second in 1995 came to the conclusion that Bachel's guilt could not be proven. After resigning, he took a vacation in the Canary Islands and then on October 10th flew to Geneva. There, his widow subsequently said he hoped to meet a mysterious informant named Robert Roloff, who supposedly had evidence that could exonerate Barshell and prove him innocent. Whether Roloff ever existed is unclear, neither is it exactly clear why he travelled to Geneva in the first place. His widow also claimed he had compromising material with him, papers, pictures and the like, which could prove embarrassing to his enemies, although this allegation was never proven. 
On the 11th of October 1987, Bichelle was found dead by two journalists working for the German magazine Stern. His body was fully dressed and lying in a bathtub filled with water in his room number 317 at the Hotel Bay Rivage in Geneva, Switzerland. Now, very interestingly enough, and I'm going to get into the death of Barshell, his autopsy uncovered a total of eight drugs in his system, including the sedatives, and I'm going to butcher some of these terms, lorazepam, diazepam, diphydramine, and pyrazine, along with the barbiturate, cyclobarbitone, and the sleep aid, and I'm going to butcher this name, pyrithdione. The Geneva prosecutor determined that Barshell's death was self-inflicted and that he'd overdosed on these medications before stepping into the bath. This method of suicide actually, very interestingly enough, corresponded with a guide published by a German right-to-death advocacy group. However, Barshell's widow and four children did not agree with this interpretation of the facts and were convinced that he was actually murdered. And they might be onto something because mysteries remain. There was unidentified fingerprints and palm prints that were found in the room. No traces were found of the bottle of Bayou Joe last wine brought to the room the previous night by a room service waiter. There's also the fact that some of the drugs found in the room and or the body were virtually impossible for a normal person to obtain, and the likely force-fed cocktail was an almost ideal death combination to kill quietly. A prominent Swiss forensic toxicologist asserted and has recently repeated his contention that the pills which killed Bichel had been ingested after he was rendered helpless by a dose of sleeping tablets, arousing suspicions that Bichel had been sedated and then poisoned. Now we get into the alternative theories surrounding Bachelle's death. Various mysteries around Bachelle's death are discussed in a January 1995 Washington Post article based on German, Spanish, and Swiss police investigations of the murder and the possible motives for it. The article reported that the Bachelle case had been reopened as a murder investigation because of evidence of third-party involvement. German authorities have fanned the flames by reopening a murder investigation, partly as a consequence of documents unearthed from East German security files and unspecified information from Germany's Federal Intelligence Agency. There is sufficient evidence of involvement of a third party in Bichelle's death. Now, who that third party might have been remains a mystery, as does a plausible motive for the murder. Among suspects bandied about in what De Spiegel magazine calls the greatest political crime story in post-war Germany are Israeli agents, an Iranian hit squad, disgruntled gun runners, and killers working for the Stasi, which was East Germany's secret police, and one recent headline even asked, was Bichelle's bathtub filled by the CIA? Another theory holds that a cunning if despondent Bachel indeed killed himself, but deliberately invested the act with enough curious circumstances to suggest foul play. This, the theory goes, was an attempt to turn himself into a victim and clear a name besmirched by a political scandal. Despite contentions by Bachel's family that he was murdered, interest in the case subsided until 1993 when it was disclosed that the press aide who'd brought the premier down had been on the payroll of the political opposition. More sinister in some minds are Stasi documents allegedly implying that Bachel had been secretly meeting with Iranian and Israeli agents and was under surveillance by the CIA and West German intelligence. One Stasi document, published recently by the Daily Berliner Zutung, reportedly cites a CIA cable intercepted by East German intelligence. Dated shortly before Bichelle's death, the cryptic message seems to refer to Bichelle as Perch, the English translation of his name. Quote, Jerry took Perch to Temple, met with Lockhell and Rabbi at 2130. Perch unyielding, refuses co-op, end quote. 
German government officials contended that the cable was probably phony, concocted by either the Stasi or the Soviet KGB as a means to embarrass Bonn or Washington. Fake or real, the Stasi papers, combined with the recent reopening of the case, have spawned half a dozen theories about who killed Bashel. One hypothesis is that Bashel was killed by a vengeful Iranian hitman after he intervened on behalf of Akel's shipyard owed 250 million marks, $160 million, by Tehran for work on a submarine project. Another theory, formally denied by the Israeli government, is that the Mossad secret service killed him after he refused to support the secret training of Iranian pilots near the Schwelzig-Holston state capital of Kiel, a project supposedly endorsed by Israel as a means of keeping Iran and Iraq at each other's throats. Still, other theories hold that Bashel was involved in illicit smuggling, either guns or nuclear material, from Sweden to India and Pakistan, and was killed because he knew too much. And there is the Stasi did it hypothesis, supposedly after the anti-communist Bashel realised that the East Germans had engineered his political demise, or either because he had learned too much about East German gun running. Israel's Mossad Secret Service was also accused of involvement in the unsolved death of German politician Yuva Bashel in October of 1987. In his book, The Other Side of Deception, former Mossad agent Viktor Ostrovsky nourishes suspicions that Bashel was killed by Israeli assassins, claiming Bashel had too much inside knowledge about an Israel-Iranian arms deal. In the 1994 book, The Other Side of Deception, a rogue agent exposes the Mossad's secret agenda, Ostrovsky claimed that a team of Israeli assassins had murdered Bashel through poisoning. The BND provided the telephone number for the Mossad agent to lure Bashel to the hotel. Ostrovsky described how Bashel was lured to Geneva's Bay Ravage Hotel by a telephone call received in October 1987 in the Canary Islands from a person called Robert Olaf, who was a Mossad agent. He met a man who was a Mossad agent in the hotel restaurant. He was provided a glass of wine which contained a sedative. Yuva Bashel left for his room and fell unconscious. According to Ostrovsky, the Mossad assassins broke into the room and inserted a feeding tube down Bashel's throat. They forced barbiturates and poisons down his throat through a tube. They also inserted a fever-inducing toxin suppository, believed to be bacterial endotoxins, into the victim's rectum and waited for a fever to develop. Once the fever developed, Bashel was placed in the ice-cold water, which shocked his body, making his heart stop. Ostrovsky states that the BND was cooperating with the Mossad in the transfer of weapons to Iran and also in the secret training of Iranian pilots that was occurring on Germany air bases during the 1980s. The goal was to make Iran and Iraq bleed each other to death, which made Iran and Iraq weak and forced these countries to slash oil prices which boosted Western economic growth in the 1980s. Although the Israeli government issued a formal denial that it was involved, such a denial according to Kilgore, especially if it is a formal one, is widely accepted in the region as confirmation that the opposite is true. According to Ostrovsky, Bashel was murdered because he refused to allow Israeli arms for Iran to be shipped from Schwelswig-Holsten ports. During the Iran-Iraq war, Israel and the United States secretly armed Iran. The US had an interest in doing so to both create an autonomous source of unmonitored revenue in which to finance the Contras and other right-wing death squad type organizations in Central America without hindrance from Congress and to obtain bargaining chips with Hezbollah, whom Iran had influence over, which at the time had several U.S. hostages in Lebanon. 
Israel had an interest in arming Iran to keep Saddam Hussein busy. Iran inherited a vast arsenal of US weapons from its Shah Mohammad Reza Pavali. Sorry if I get that name wrong. Israel, with its large collection of US weapons, was in a prime position to sell Hawk Sam's M60 tank spare parts, F4 Phantom parts, and air-to-air missiles to Tehran. Ostrovsky's credibility has always been an open question since his written works contain a jumble of information, some true, some exaggerated. Much of it seems to be Mossad Hall gossip, some possibly made up altogether. Yet, Two things have never been in doubt. Ostrovsky has been treated as a major state enemy by Israel, his former employer, and Ostrovsky's account of Bashel's assassination was very detailed and seemed to jibe with what investigators had found at the crime scene, as well as the family's recollection of events. The former spook now runs an art gallery in Arizona and sticks by his story. Now, the ex-Mossad operative's account got backing from a 1995 investigative report in the Washington Post, which reached complementary conclusions and led Israel to offer a relatively weak denial that it had any involvement in Bashel's death. Mossad never comments on its more unpleasant activities, but some denials have been stronger than others. Questions about Israel's involvement in the case have lingered since the mid-1990s without much more evidence to prove or disprove Ostrovsky's shocking claims. The German detective leading the investigation then concluded it was likely murder, not suicide, but there was insufficient proof to back that up. In addition, the police investigation found indications that another person had been in Bashel's room at the time of his death. The official autopsy also found some traces of force having been applied. Ostrovsky's book makes for some very interesting reading. Amongst other kinds of dirty tricks in which the Mossad also specializes, Ostrovsky asserts that it doctored the file of the then US Secretary General Kurt Waldheim to implicate him in Nazi crimes. The doctored file subsequently was discovered by then Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, Benjamin Netanyahu, to smear Waldheim. The reason? Israel was apparently unhappy with Waldheim's criticism of Israeli activities in southern Lebanon. This is chillingly reminiscent of the great Hannah Arden's memorable remuneration of the banity of evil in her monumental Eichmann in Jerusalem. Ostrovsky also charges that Mossad framed Libya in the April 5th 1986 bombing of the West Berlin discotheque in which two US servicemen and a Turkish woman were fatally injured. The background was that by planting an unmanned radio of its own in Libya, Mossad broadcast fraudulent orders for terrorist attacks to Libyan embassies around the world. Although the orders were rejected as false by the Spanish and French intelligence services, they were picked up and accepted as real by US intelligence. As a consequence, Libya was blamed by the US for the Labelle discotheque attack. Ironically, according to Ostrovsky, even Mossad had no clue as to whom the real culprits were. Particularly shocking to American readers is Ostrovsky's claim that a right-wing clique within Mossad decided, unbeknownst to then-Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir, to assassinate President George Bush when the president was in Madrid at the end of October 1991 for the opening of Arab-Israeli peace talks. Evidence was to be manufactured implicating the Palestinians. The clique believed that Shamir would have ordered the assassination himself if he hadn't been gagged by politics because the American president had frozen US loan guarantees to Israel. Three named Palestinian extremists were taken from Beirut to Israel's Negev desert and held incommunicado, according to Ostrovsky. Meanwhile, Mossad generated threats on the president's life, seemingly from Palestinians, were leaked. These were designed to throw suspicion on the organization of rogue Palestinian terrorist Abu Naidal. Names and descriptions of the three terrorists were leaked to Spanish police so that if the plot was successful, blame would automatically fall on them. 
Eventually, however, the assassination plot was called off for reasons Ostrowski does not explain. In a grisly conclusion to the story, however, the three Palestinian prisoners met the fate that had been decreed for them from the time the plot was hatched. In the Negev hideout where they were being held, they were terminated to employ Ostrovsky's chilling word. Ostrovsky also charges that Mossad murdered British press magnate Robert Maxwell, whose body was recovered from the seas around the Canary Islands. At the time, Maxwell had overextended his media empire by entering the successful bid for which he couldn't come up with the cash to buy, the New York Daily News. I have covered this case on this podcast in an earlier episode. And, as has been widely speculated in the press, Mossad murdered Gerald Bull in Brussels when the Canadian engineer rejected Israeli demands that he cease work for Iraq during the Iraq-Iran war on a super long-range gun. This is a case I'll cover on another podcast episode. Now we get into the Bushell case review. As of 2010, the cause of his death remains unproven and highly controversial. On the 12th of June 2011, the Public Prosecution Department of Lubbock announced that the Bushell case would be reopened and re-examined, with more sophisticated techniques such as DNA profiling being employed to find out the actual circumstances of the politician's demise. Bushell left behind a wife and four children who are convinced that Bushell was killed. His death to this day remains disputed and unresolved. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remains unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I've covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time, next on Unanswered Questions. The Perth Mint Swindle is the popular name for the robbery of 49 gold bars weighing 68 kilograms, which is 150 pounds or 2,200 troy ounces, from the Perth Mint in Western Australia on the 22nd of June 1982. 